Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Amr Miglani about his recent article, A Comparative Analysis of Endoscopic Sinus Surgery versus Biologic for Treatment of Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyposis. Hi, and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School, the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Today, I have Dr. Amar Miglani, a rhinology fellowship trained otolaryngologist who recently joined the faculty at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona after completing fellowship at the Medical University of Southern California. Hi, Amar, and welcome to our humble podcast. How is uh, the transition so far coming back to uh, Arizona? It's been it's been really nice. I, I did my residency training here at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and so the the transition has been really great. I'm familiar with the entire department and had a, a very fulfilling practice even within the first year. So fortunate to be back, and nice. thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. So you did your residency at Mayo, went to do fellowship, and that was with Dr. Schlosser and Dr. Solar who are also co-authors on this paper that we're going to talk about. Well, first of all, congratulations on that recently accepted paper. And we're going to talk about it's entitled A Comparative Analysis of Endoscopic Sinus Surgery versus Biologics for Treatment of Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyposis. Obviously, lots of interest in this area. So, But you tell me, like, where did this study come from? What was the background on it? And, you know, particularly for you, I know you were a fellow there, but, but did you have a particular interest in this area? Yeah, so um, I, I have a big interest in, in treating inflammatory disease, chronic sinusitis. And, you know, now we, we have a number of treatment options for patients with nasal polyps. And now that there are three biologics that are FDA approved, but we, what we don't have a lot of are studies that compare uh, treatment efficacy between all the various options. And so that that's really where this idea stemmed from was, hey, could we design a study that can compare two of the treatment options for refractory CRS with nasal polyps? And, and how could we go about doing that? Part of what some of my co-authors, Dr. Solar, Dr. Schlosser, Dr. Smith are a part of is, is they've uh, been involved in many studies where we've looked at a cohort of, of prospective CRS patients over time um, mm-hmm. who've had surgery. The, the data collection for this went back to, to 2011. And so we basically wanted to see all these patients from 2011 to 2019, if we could basically come up with a cohort of patients that were similar to the biologic clinical trial studies and see if we can compare um, efficacy looking at a, at a comparable cohort. Has this kind of study been done before? I mean, this whole question of sinus surgery versus biologics, you would think that there'd be a couple of studies at least uh, published before, maybe emerging that have kind of tried to address that question. And and how is yours different from those? So there's not a lot, actually. There there was one nice retrospective study that was Mm -hmm. published by the Pittsburgh group in IFAR. And that was a nice study, basically retrospectively looking at, at dupilumab compared to endoscopic sinus surgery for patients with CRS with nasal polyps. You know, that was a really nice study and it, and it, and it showed some really useful information. It showed that symptom scores following both interventions were fairly comparable. There was um, some differences in regards to how patients did with smell and a few other metrics, uh, but there were some limitations in that when they assessed their endpoints 
for the surgical arm and when they assessed their endpoints for the uh, dupilumab arm were, were different. And that was, that's that's because this was a retrospective study and, and they couldn't basically assess outcomes at, you know, at a, in a controlled fashion at six months and then at 12 months. And so that's where our study is a little bit different is these patients were collected prospectively mm -hmm. and we had outcomes for them at six months and at 12 months. And that's what the clinical trials, that's how they were designed. They basically um, assessed outcomes at six months. Some of them assessed outcomes at 12 months. And so th this is basically looking, looking at it at a slightly different way. So Amar, you sort of alluded to the fact that this kind of cohort of patients were being collected, like even before this question arose, and they were just mm -hmm. prospective collecting outcomes, patient reported outcomes for sinus surgery, just going forward. And then it just happened that this question emerged and you thought about it. So I guess my question to you is, how did you identify out of this pool of potential candidates, how did you guys decide which patients to put in this surgical cohort? And, you know, you sort of alluded to this when you talked about this, about, you know, refractory nasal polyps, you know, should you do surgery and versus biologics? Were these all patients who'd had surgery before and now were having recurrent polyps? And so therefore that's how you chose them or how, you know, what was your criteria? Yeah. For so, so it was, a, it was a little bit of a, of a, a mixed bag of patients, but, um, you know, I think, I think the timing, the timing actually worked out really nicely for this study as well, because, um, again, we looked at patients from 2011 to 2019, and in that time, the really biologics weren't really approved for use in CRS with nasal polyps. People could get it for other reasons, but um, so 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 that really made the comparison nice and clean. In that, there really wasn't uh, biologics as an option mm -hmm. for this prospective cohort of patients. So that so that was one kind of benefit of it. Uh, but then, how did we filter down these patients? Uh, to get a, um, a comparable cohort to the biologic studies. Well, we basically looked at the biologic studies. We looked at the, the Liberty trial, which was the Dupixent study, the Polyp trials, which were the Omalizumab study, and then the Synapse trial, which was the Mepolizumab study. And we looked at the inclusion criteria from each of those studies. And overall, the inclusion criteria for those studies were fairly similar. They all required adult patients, so patients 18 years or older, they all have to have severe nasal polyps defined by the nasal polyp score. So for every single one of those studies, they all have to have a nasal polyp score of, of five or above with a minimum of two on each side. They also had to have moderate nasal congestion, at least moderate nasal congestion. And they define that based on off of a nasal congestion score of, of two or above on a scale of zero to three. Um, and then there was a few differences between mm -hmm. The trial. So, so the biggest differences for the mepolizumab trial, the synapse trial, um, those were all surgical failures. But we basically uh, looked at, at at the first three variables that I mentioned, and and we wanted to apply that to our prospective cohort of patients. Um, there were some limitations in that, um, in that the we didn't really collect nasal polyp scores for our prospective cohort of patients. We collected uh, Lund Kennedy scores. Um, and the reason that we that the Lund Kennedy scores were used in this prospective cohort is, is because it was really a time before the nasal polyp score was widely adopted. Mm -hmm. um, that's one. And then for busy clinical practices, the Lund Kennedy score is a little bit easier to use. Uh, but there are a lot of similarities in scoring, and, and there were some conversions that we could do. So we basically used the Lund Kennedy score to define um, severe nasal polyposis in our cohort. 
And so, so uh, we defined severe nasal polyposis as a Lund Kennedy score of, of four, which is basically two on each side. And the, mm-hmm. Lund, the Lund Kennedy score is on a scale of zero to four. And so we basically were able to get 111 patients with, with six months of follow-up from 2011 to 2019. What we found was that the baseline patient characteristics, um, looking at the surgical cohort and comparing it to the biologic clinical trials, were overall very similar. Um, so the, the, there was no significant differences in age, gender distribution, asthma status, AERD status. Um, the, everyone had a Lund Kennedy score of four uh, across all these groups by definition. We had Lund Mackay scores available for the Dupilumab study and for our sinus surgery cohort, and there was no differences, significant differences in the uh, Lund Mackay CT scan score either. So overall, we were very happy to see that the cohorts, um, by applying the, these what we call modified inclusion criteria to our sinus surgery cohort, the baseline patient demographics were actually largely similar. Yeah, so I, I looked at that, and I, I, I agree with you that um, you know it was nice that you had the Lund McKay score, which is based on the CT scan, um, because I you know I, I looked at how you converted it right, and I'm, I was also thinking about because being a part of some of these. Um, biologic trials, they were actually very difficult to recruit for because their total polyp score in order to qualify for the study had to be a five. And so if you know about the polyp score, right, so that that means that on one side, it had to at least be a three, which meant that the polyp had to be at least at the inferior border of the inferior turbinate, which is basically like fully completely filling up the, the nasal cavity. But when you look at the Lund Kennedy score of a two, it just means that it's outside of the, the middle, middle base, which right. could be barely a, um, which is not a three on the total polyp score and not anywhere close to a four. Um, so I, I found like, even though you made, you guys did a great job in trying to, you know, make that conversion, um, it was a little bit like, uh, I don't know if I could buy that conversion, but having that objective CT scan and the Lund McKay score. Granted, there are some, you know, it's not very sensitive um, as what we would like. I, I, I found that reassuring. Um, yeah, I, I agree. CT scan. I had the same thought. I thought that it was really nice that the that that objective metric matched up to Lund McKay scores matched up, and and ideally it would have been nice if we had collected nasal polyp scores, but that that really was an option and was definitely a limitation of the study. Now, and one thing that you, I know that you were saying that in general, the baselines were similar, but, you know, I had asked about the, the uh, revision rates. Um, were these all naive sinus patients or so, were they, were they had had, they had previous surgeries before? So 60% of the cohort of the surgical cohort had prior sinus surgery. And that was in line with a lot of the biologic trials. So in the, in the Dupilumab studies, it was around 60%. Um, in the Omalizumab studies, it was around 50%. Um, the only, the significant difference came when we looked at the Mepolizumab study and the sinus surgery cohort, the Mepolizumab study, every single patient, that was, an, that was part of their inclusion criteria was that every patient had to have failed surgery in the past. So, um, so there was a significant difference there. Um, and then the only other, the only other big significant difference we noted in the baseline patient characteristics were the baseline SNOT 22 score. Um, everyone was in the severe range. So the surgical cohort um, was, was mid fifties. Uh, the, the dupilumab 
are the Tupilumab studies were slightly lower, but it was all within one MCID. Okay. And the mepolizumab was slightly higher, but again, was within one MCID. And the omelizumab actually had, uh, the omelizumab uh, studies had very similar baseline characteristics across the board. So basically, you, you get this cohort of patients that um, you've been collecting um, patient-reported outcomes on who's, who had sinus surgery with at least, uh, you had data for six months and a year. So mm-hmm. you had at least one year follow-up. And then you compared it to the outcomes and uh, various different um, outcomes associated with these biologic trials. So let's start with um, one outcome that, you know, to the study that you alluded to and um, the previous study from the Pittsburgh group. Um, and you you guys talked about it too here. It was sense of smell. Um, so smell, um, at least from the previous Pittsburgh study, showed that what they did was they looked at the SNOT-22 score. In general, they were very similar between surgery versus biologics. But when you looked at some of the subdomains, they found some some minor differences between those two different um, treatment arms. And it sort of made sense. And one of them that that stuck out, and I think anecdotally that many um, people who treat these patients see as well as this, this pretty dramatic change in their sense of smell. Um, and I think it stands out because the polyps don't necessarily melt away as you would, ex- you would think mm-hmm. that would lead to the sense of smell. So what did you guys find? Where, was there a difference in, in smell outcomes between sinus surgery um, and biologics at six months into a year? For us, so when we compared sinus surgery to dupilumab at six months, from when we're looking at subjective measures, so the patient-reported outcome measures, there was actually no difference. Both of them improved uh, the subjective sense of smell, but there was no significant difference whether it was surgery or dupilumab. Okay. So that was slightly different um, from the Pittsburgh group. I believe they showed that sense of smell improved um, significantly more with dupilumab compared to surgery. But what we found was um, that at six months, there was no significant difference in that in that degree of benefit. Uh, we also, the, the benefit of, of our study is we also had objective testing. Um, so we, we looked at the, the baseline olfactory category. So how many patients were anosmic, normosmic, and hyposmic. Mm-hmm. And um, we looked at baseline at 24 weeks for, for um, the S cohort and dupilumab. And we showed that the, the olfactory distribution, so how many patients were normosmic, hyposmic, anosmic, improved to a similar degree between okay. both the S cohort and the dupilumab cohort. So we have both subjective and objective metrics showing that they actually both improved similarly. So the one thing I was a little bit confused on was when I looked at table four, where you're looking at your six-month outcome between all of these different groups, um, it, it says that there was no significant difference noted using the SIT-40. I believe that's an objective testing of smell. Is that the? It, or that's the it, smell. That, that's the smell identification test. That's the upset. Basically, that's the upset. Yeah, the okay. upset. It's the, it, it's the same thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so the uh, so the objective upset. So what I see here on your column, though, is that with the sinus surgery, you had an improvement of plus thirty at six months, uh, or plus thirty six. So there was an improvement in their smell, but both the dupilumab ones seemed significantly high, better improvement reporting at the 77, 72 range. And then you know, your omalizumab studies were closer to what we saw or what you guys reported with the sinus surgery. 
But yet, I guess from statistical perspective, there was no difference. But it seemed like that really stands out as a big difference. Um, yeah. So, 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 so one of the one of the I guess the limitations is that the number of SIT40s that we had for the sinus surgery group was was very small. We actually had so there, there's there's various smell tests, objective smell tests. Mm -hmm. The SIT40 is one of them. The other one that uh, that we had data on for our surgical cohort was the was the sniffing sticks. We we actually only had four patients with SIT40 data. We had 34 patients with sniffing sticks. And so what we did was we at, in order to to perform this analysis, we used normative data. And so based on their their test results, we grouped them into that those categories: the the uh, anosmics, hyposmics, and normosmics. And then we were able to make some comparisons. I think part of the reason why the SIT40 data didn't show any significant differences is because for the surgical cohort, looking at just the SIT40s, there was a very low number of patients. Another outcome that um, really stood out from previous studies was this difference in polyp score between uh, surgery and the biologics. Did you find similar uh, findings, meaning that um, usually surgery improved the polyp score much more so than any of the biologics? Yeah, that's exactly what we found. Uh, we found surgery compared to um, all the all the, the three biologics um, resulted in significantly better polyp scores after intervention. So okay. that was consistent with prior studies. And, and that was something that was significant. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's an interesting finding because um, because as I mentioned, at least when we looked at, when we looked at dupilumab versus surgery, the improvement in olfaction was pretty similar. Uh, however, polyps with surgery shrunk down quite a bit more, and that just shows that the relationship between polyp size and olfaction it's much more complicated than you reduce the polyp size and and smell improves. Um, it, it's much more complicated than that. And I think that that's an area that we just need more information. So it sounds like, so the take-home message from your study, then looking at these outcomes, what would you conclude at, let's say six months into a year, what are the general take-home key findings from your analysis? I think it's most useful to kind of break it down by what we compared. So if, if, you're, if we're thinking about, so surgery uh, versus dupilumab at six months and at 12 months, it seems like the uh, symptom outcomes are fairly comparable, but polyp size uh, decreases significantly more with surgery. Now, if you're comparing um, surgery to omalizumab uh, at six months, we had data on that and surgery tended to result in significantly better symptom outcomes uh, and also reduced polyp size to a greater degree. And then lastly, when we compared surgery to mepolizumab uh, at one year, it seemed like surgery provided better symptom outcomes, although there was no statistical significant benefit at that point. Um, and then again, polyp scores uh, were significantly better with, with the surgical arm compared to mepolizumab at that time point. Um, so a lot of this, you know, I think, I think another, another big key takeaway is, you know, what's the, what's the utility of a lot of this information. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, this is, this is, this was a very data dense study. And I think if you sit down and you look at it, this gives you stuff to discuss with your patients. So shared decision-making is a big thing in CRS with nasal polyps. 
uh, because we have so many options as evidenced by the study and as evidence as to, to everything, everything that we have available now for, for treating this complex condition. And so I think where this is useful is if someone asks, hey, you know, how do I get my symptoms better? Or, hey, how do I get my smell better? Now we have some comparative data that, that you can present to patients and help them make an informed decision. Great. So and that's basically the question I was going to ask you. And I don't know if there's anything more that you wanted to add to that, but, you know, how do you translate your findings to clinical practice, you know, when um, from a counseling perspective, but given what you know, and in your analysis, do you lean towards a certain recommendation? Because, you know, oftentimes you tell them and you sit down and you have this conversation, but in the end, the patient looks at you and says, so doc, what do you want? What should I do? Yeah, what you say, right? So we can talk about all this uh, nicety of you know shared decision making. But in the end, my patients say, "So, doc, what 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 do you recommend? So, what do you say?" So, so for so for me, uh, you know, the 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 first part of the visit is trying to just get to understand uh, the patient's temperament. So there are patients that are are exactly like that. There's many, most of my patients are just like, I just want to hear what your recommendation is. But then there are other patients who want want to be more involved and really want to know all the information. So the first part of my visit is really trying to understand the patient's temperament. Do Do they want, you know, an authoritarian type of doctor who wants to tell them exactly what their recommendation is or 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 do they want more of a dialogue or do they want more of the, the information and then do do we want to arrive at a decision together so first it's understanding their temperament and then after that really i try to focus on just presenting all the options to them um, so for refractory crs with nasal polyps um, you know surgery is an option topical corticosteroids are an option, the sinus implants are an option, biologics are an option. And I just try to go through what the advantages and disadvantages are to each option and and present all that information to them, Um, you know, other things like costs, et cetera, and um, help them make an informed decision. And I think this this study is really nice in that the efficacy piece, you know, it really provides a lot of information on that front to help those patients make that decision. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That I mean, that's the, the that's what I spend most of my time trying to figure out about my patients is, you know, you know, what are these other aspects of their disease that are important in terms of, you know, knowing which ones to recommend and how strongly to recommend them and, right. and how to present the data, right? There's there's a lot of patients who are like, there's just that's just too much information. Right. To tell me what I need to do. And then also just trying to figure out other comorbidities, right? We didn't really get a chance to dive into all of that, but you know, there are um, benefits um, to maybe one choice over the other as it as it relates to some of these other um, diseases. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's really important. So the other thing, and and we'll end with, with this, I I really enjoyed um, having this conversation with you is, you know, does the calculation change? I I tried to pin you on, you know, um, you know, if a primary surgery versus revision surgery, are we only talking about revision surgery or recurrent nasal polyps? Does any of these calculations change when you're thinking about a patient who hasn't had surgery and you're talking surgery versus biologics, or is the calculation seems to be, this is about revision fest. This is about recurrence because the data seems pretty clear that um, in the aggregate, one of these options is better as a first choice than the other. That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I think both are options when you're looking specifically at revision patients, 
I think you and I both know that there's varying degrees of, of how thorough a science operation can be. So a lot of it depends on, um, you know, what, what was done initially, um, what are the causes of failure? Are there, are, is there anything surgically that can be optimized? A lot of that information factors into, um, you know, whether revision surgery is going to be an option or, um, you know, whether I'm favoring offering biologics. Yeah. And I think the, I think another strong thing that I guess that came out of your study, along with some of the work that Schlosser has done as well, is just understanding that you guys presented really nicely similar efficacies at these endpoints, but you lose those efficacy benefits when you stop biologic. And so therefore, surgery um, continues to have these effects after just one procedure, right? And Schlosser had reported um, that of all the patients that his group has done over, or actually it was a meta-analysis. So it's even stronger than that, that the revision rate was uh, for sinus surgery was only in the 18%. And so there's a small cohort of patients, you know, aspirin, exasperated respiratory disease, allergic fungal rhinosinusitis that may have higher revision rates. But because of that, and the fact that your study has shown really nicely that the efficacies of polyp scores, symptom scores, these smell scores, these things that we all consider important, um, that um, they're very similar, but yet one, you may need to continue for the rest of your your life, right? Versus someone who um, you only has to have this procedure once possibly. I think that that says to, at least for in, in my understanding that, you know, sinus surgery should always go first. Um, yeah. And then when you're dealing with these um, recurrent situation is where then that shared decision-making and all those other factors you alluded to become really important. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The Dupixin study had a, had a nice, I believe it was the Dupixin study had a nice diagram showing that once patients stopped the biologic, um, after about one to two months, their symptoms recurred essentially, um, or there was a decline in their symptom scores. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of, of patients, who, who have not been operated on, uh, I think a thorough surgery followed by topical corticosteroids can, can control the vast majority of them. And so I do think that um, in primary settings, I, I think that, that that's how I would practice as well, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and you sort of alluded to this too, that there's so many other options of how to deliver that steroid as well into the sinus cavity. So there's different options available there. And there are other um you know, continuing to have research and innovative approaches to providing that surgery into the sinus cavity that I think, um, you know, luckily uh, we have these biologics for those really tough patients, Mm -hmm. um, but we also have these other options. And I think that's where it gets a little bit more challenging, but also a lot better than once upon a time, it was oral steroids or surgery. (laughs) Right. And that was a very tough, (laughs) Tough. Uh, it was it was easy and hard at the same time because it was right. just not a great choice, but um, right. but easy because there were only two choices. Yeah, and I think I think it, it you know it's it it's an exciting time now as well because of of, of all the, re- the the research that's being done and trying to find predictive biomarkers as well. I think that's that's going to be another area where the whole treatment landscape changes is is trying to identify biomarkers and figure out who the responders are going to be to some of these biologics. So, you know, that may further change these personalized care pathways that are developing. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. I think that part of the reason the biologics were so exciting is that we, you know, when you did try some biologics, some, I mean, I have gotten some really dramatic responses, right? Mm-hmm. That that I sometimes didn't see with my sinus surgery because it always takes a while for things to heal and always takes a while to sort of settle down. Um, and so some of these biologically patients who were treated with biologics, there were some profound, like the pulp just melted away. Melted away, yeah. Right. And so identifying those, but that wasn't a majority of patients. Right. right. So there was like, a, so I think you're, you, you hit the nail on the head trying to identify if, if possible, you know, upfront, who are going to be these responders where the, the, the polyps just melt away and the symptoms improve significantly. Boy, that would be huge. And so, uh, yeah, so we are looking to young uh, colleagues like yourself who are <laughs> <laughs> who are embarking on looking for research uh, questions. That looks like a, a great one for yeah, you. Yeah, that is a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like you've got lots of work to do, my friend. <laughs> Thank um, you so much, Amber, for yeah. having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was fun having you on and uh, thank you for addressing a very important topic. And like you said, surprisingly, there is a paucity of research and you guys added a huge amount of very um, important data that all of us um, can can utilize and provide to our patients and and help make those decisions. So thank you again. Have a great rest of the evening and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.